We're in Mark chapter 2, so if you have a Bible, you want to get to the end of that chapter. You don't have one, we'll put it on the screen for you, so no worries, we'll, we'll take care of you there. We are in a section of Scripture from chapter 2 to verse 6 of chapter 3, where theologians call it the conflicts with Jesus, or collisions, right? Pharisees, religious leaders, the elite, uh, they're struggling with what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. Uh, beginning of chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralytic man. Before he does, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees thought to themselves, kept it to themselves, only God can do that, right? This is a problem. <clears throat> the next event we see is that there is uh, Jesus hanging out and having a dinner party with, we call them the notoriously evil people. The wicked people and the Pharisees now are asking the disciples. They've kind of moved up a step and said, why is he doing that? Nobody does that. You don't hang out with sinners. And Jesus' comment was, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Very offensive if you consider yourself righteous. Jesus is not there for you. Um, the last time we got together, two weeks ago, we, we looked at, at the confrontation that, that the, the Pharisees had with Jesus because he wasn't fasting. And it wasn't the, the law fast of the Day of Atonement that all good Hebrew people followed. This was uh, this is one of those man-made um, laws, the kind of laws that come in this kind of environment. If some law is good, more law is better. We invent Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we'll all fast. And if God likes fasting, we'll give him fasting. And so everyone was fasting on these days except for Jesus. And so they're accusing him of breaking the rules. And Jesus' comment to them was... <clears throat> that what I'm doing in this world doesn't fit with your legalistic, hardcore, list kind of religion. I've come to bring grace, and you're thinking about work, and they don't go together. So that's, that's the conflicts we've had so far. Today, we're going to deal with the last two in this section of the conflicts the Pharisees have with Jesus, and both events are over the Sabbath day. Now, I'm going to define the Sabbath for some of us that are so far from a, a Bible narrative that we don't know what that means, but uh, nevertheless, it was a special day that God told his people to set aside for him. Both stories are about this day. Now, every time I come to a text, I even sat down with some of the preaching collective guys, the pastors that are teaching, and it just feels like there's several different angles you could come to this text and try to make a point in 35 minutes, and, and so... Um, but I think there are so many things packed in this, in these two stories. One would be man's law versus God's law um, and what that means. One would be Jesus' authority and then, and then ultimately the hardness of men's hearts. All wrapped up in these narratives about this day called the Sabbath day, okay? And just like we saw two weeks ago, Jesus is being accused again, breaking the rules. And... Uh, and the rules that he's breaking, as, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, is Jesus is breaking the fourth commandment to keep this, the special day, the Sabbath day. But he is not breaking God's rules, as we'll see. He is breaking man's rules, and therein lies the, the tension. Uh, maybe you've heard this old adage, hell, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. You ever heard that story, that little adage? I think it's far worse for, for a religious person. Nobody's meaner, no, nobody's hotter, nobody's harder to get along with than people who are making lists for themselves and others. You ever run into some of these people? They're absolutely concerned with, with how you are doing what you're doing and what you should be doing with your life, and they will judge you accordingly, and they can get pretty carried away, and that's exactly what's going on in these stories. The religious, the most powerful, the most learned people are starting with what Jesus is doing and they think he should be doing something totally different. And so their angst is growing. 
Now, I understand there's a giant cultural divide and distance between the stories of a Sabbath day and what to do or not do on that day in, in our world. They're going to sound really silly to us. I thought of an illustration. This goes way, way back to try to talk about how silly we can be with our expectations on, on one another. But back in the 60s and 70s, there was this thing that hit the church world called the Jesus Movement. Anybody remember that? Some of you were lived it, okay? Um, but it happened on the West Coast, particularly in an area in Costa Mesa, and Calvary Chapel with Chuck Smith was where it was kind of happening, and, and they had a, an issue. And here's the issue. Hippies were getting saved. Hippies didn't shower, and they didn't wear shoes. And so they had built this building. This is a true story. They had built a building, and the leaders of the church really were struggling with hippies coming in the building because they were making everything smelly and dirty. And they were concerned about the carpet. They need to wear shoes. Are they going to get the carpet? Their feet are filthy. So Chuck had a great solution. He said, yank out the carpet. And so that's what they did. They fixed the problem with carpet. Now, you look at that and go, that's so silly. Who would care? Who would care? Wouldn't it be just great to have a whole bunch of people coming to know Christ and worship? Of course it would be. But we're, we're twisted people. I mean, it just depends on which little hot button we, we touch and we'll be there. That story and this story are going to seem totally ridiculous to us on what to do on a, on a particular day. And so I wanted to stop before we got into the text, and I want to throw out a caution. Because you're going to go through these stories, if you're not careful, and you're just going to go, wow, bad day for Jesus, I guess. So, those guys really struggle. I don't know how it fits in my life. And here's, here's where I'm going to tell you it fits in your life. There is a little bit of legalist in every person in this room. And you might resist that and go, not me. I'm as free as a bird. I don't have room to measure anybody else, but that's not really how I'm interpreting this idea of legalist, like a Pharisee. What is a legalist really other than someone who interprets right and wrong and how they're supposed to live, how to be right, get right with God? Right? They're just deciding which rules apply to them, right? And that, that's kind of, kind of a classic interpretation of it. So let's, let's split this apart so everyone can get close to this particular story. I don't know very many like, classic legalists in my life anymore, who are actually measuring what, what you and I do. But they can exist, potentially. And here's how they see life. They, they skip the principles of God's word because they're so concerned with lists. They, they, want, they want law. They want duty because they consider them rungs on a ladder to please God. Make sense? So a classic legalist will just simply say, let's skip over the principles. Principles don't apply, like we're going to see here, the Sabbath principle. We're more interested in the list. We're going to skip over that because let's get busy and, and doing things. You've run into people like this. I have too. They shouldn't be dressing like that. This is the house of God. Right? I actually had a guy at the front door get crazy. Uh, this was years and years ago um, about that kind of thing, about a hat. Um, some would look at what we do in worship and say, that's too much. It's too much energy. God wants stoic people. Or it's not enough. It's not enough. And I had a, I had, this happened a year ago. I had a guy call me to talk about you. And he, sa he simply said, I don't think they love Jesus. They're not expressive enough. And I kind of felt my blood pressure going up. This is not good. Just a tip. If you ever want to confront me, be soft and subtle. But I, got, I kind of felt like, how do you know what these people think? The Bible says a man doesn't even know his own heart and intentions, and you're judging thousands of people. How do you know? He's not here anymore. Too bad. <laughs> so, um, but nevertheless, there are people, classic, classic legalists who are making lists and saying, if everyone does these things, if we do these things, if I do these things, 
I'm in better shape. Everyone understand that? Okay. But some of us show our legalistic stripes in another way. If the classic legalist skips principles to get to lists, some of us just skip everything, right? And we skip the principles. We don't think they apply. So in other words, we've concluded that God's word has nothing to say about a matter, at least we don't think so, and so we stop to consider that there's something else to apply. God didn't give me an absolute. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. We don't even think any farther than that. And a perfect example of that is is this discussion about Sabbath rest. And here's the point that I want to make. Is there a Sabbath day for us to keep holy or not? That's a good question. If the Sabbath day, according to Paul in Colossians 2, was simply a shadow of the person of rest, meaning a day of rest pointed to Jesus, who is our ultimate rest, if that's all that it is, then can we conclude that since we have Jesus, then there's nothing else to consider about the fourth commandment of the 10 that God gave his people? Like, just never mind now? Nothing else to think about? Do whatever you want to do. Don't even consider the principles of Sabbath. And I think in these two stories that we see today, Jesus is establishing the principles of Sabbath rest and his authority over it. So that's one of the couple of things that we're going to talk about today. And how does that fit? And why was he being confronted? And why did he respond the way he did? And something for us to learn in there. So let's get into the text. Um, It's interesting to note that... uh, all the tension is escalating in these narratives, in these confrontations with the Pharisees. From, from sitting back and questioning what Jesus is doing, not willing to say anything, to questioning his disciples. And then ultimately we see even by the end of chapter, by the time we get done with the story in chapter 3, they're plotting to kill him. Things are now getting worse. Progressively worse and worse in this story. Verse 23 starts our text for today. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, stop for a second. Let's define Sabbath so everyone's close to the table. The Sabbath is the fourth commandment of the ten. It happens to be the longest in verbiage, 97 words, I think, God quoted um, that we have in our text regarding what we are to do with this special day. Here's, Here's the actual text in Exodus 20. Listen to it. The command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, that's the command. That's one of the 10 that the Israelites were following, right? Sabbath simply means rest. If there was two particular aspects of the Jewish lifestyle and faith of Yahweh that stood out to all and separated them from everybody else, one of them was circumcision. It was a physical representation of this, we're set apart, we're a different people. We belong to God, we're not kidding, he's set us apart. It's a holy position, so this circumcision thing was a, just a physical way to say that. The second thing that set the Israelites apart was this idea of Sabbath. What they did and didn't do on that day, they were radically different. God said, you, you can knock yourself out for six days in the week, on that seventh day, it's over. Don't do any more. God commanded uh, that seventh day of rest. 
um, to say to his people, you stop striving now. Stop it. Stop, stop working. Stop your effort. Rest. And the reason why he commanded this rest is so that you will know I am your father who ultimately cares for your provision. You, you can do your thing. Work is not a bad, dirty word. It's not. You do your thing. But that day, you are preaching a message to yourself when you rest. I don't make this happen. He makes it happen. I rest in him. I am covered in the love of God. I don't have to strive any, anymore. God called the day a blessed day. In other words, he made the day holy. So it's a, it's, a, it's a worship day. It is a day of focusing on who he is and what he's provided to us. It's the ultimate expression of worship. But mankind has a problem. We instinctively don't rest in God's supply. That doesn't come natural to us. God says rest, oh, yeah, no problem. No, we, we look at it and go, okay, no, I want to feel that rest I want to touch that rest. I want to know that rest. I want to count that rest in my bank account. I want, I want to know rest. And so we'll start working our way to things and, and providing for ourselves, which is exactly what's happening in this story. It is the discussion about the Sabbath and how the Jews felt about their performance. Look at verse 23 and 24 again. On the Sabbath day, he was going through the grain fields, and as he made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here, here's what's going on. This, this particular activity doesn't even really register with us in our culture. But as far as the Pharisees were concerned, the disciples of Jesus were breaking the law, this fourth commandment of work. Now, it doesn't look like it, right? Just walking along like a wheat field, reaching over, grabbing some kernels off the stalk, and, you know, just eating a few of those things. It doesn't look like they're breaking that fourth commandment, but that's how they felt. And it wasn't just the particulars of the fourth commandment. It was the interpretation of the fourth commandment, which they're dealing with. Now, let me get you close to that. Um, the, uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, had worked for some 400 years to create this Torah, the, this oral Torah, this um, oral traditions of how to interpret and how to see and um, understand what God meant by don't, okay? So they had put together like unbelievable amounts, volumes and volumes of what you're not supposed to do on that day to avoid breaking this commandment, okay? Someone's calculated 39 in the Mishnah, 39 different separate categories trying to divide work, like what you need to avoid um, to obey this commandment. So let me share with you a couple of the most odd ones. Uh, you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your home because any more than that would be work. And, and so any, anybody who was thinking at the time decided that 3,000 feet was enough. So what they did to adjust the law was tie a string to their house. And if they could carry the string farther than 3,000 feet, then they were at least in their house because the string is attached, right? Kind of funny. Um, you couldn't lift certain objects. In fact, it had to be lighter or about equal to a dried fig. You couldn't eat more than an olive. Um, you could throw something up in the air and catch it in the same hand. But if you threw it up in the air and caught it with the opposite hand, you were breaking the law. Um, if you were having dinner on Friday night and the Sabbath starts at sundown and you don't pay attention and suddenly you're reaching out for the stew and the sun goes down, you're not supposed to draw back your hand. You're not supposed to finish your activity. You're supposed to drop it where it is because you'd be breaking the law if you finished, okay? That's including a spoon to your mouth, by the way. 
You couldn't buy or sell anything. You couldn't light a fire. You couldn't take a bath. Not that a bath was a problem, but you would inevitably spill water on the floor. And if you spill water on the floor, they'd be washing the floor, and you can't work on the Sabbath. You just don't do that. Sounds funny, right? They realized that you could probably not lift a chair to get the chair to you, but what they concluded was if I drag the chair to me on these dirt floors, the chair legs would create furrows in the ground, and that's, that's plowing, and you can't plow on the Sabbath. So don't do that. Um, you were not allowed to look in a mirror in case you saw something that needed adjustment or a hair to pull or something odd to do, you know? You were avoided in the mirror. If someone got sick, you could only bring enough help to uh, keep them alive. You could not bring them um, any help to improve them, just keep them stable. And when it came to grain or harvesting, there was copious notes on what you could or could not do. So you couldn't, you couldn't reap and you couldn't grind and you couldn't winnow, you couldn't sift. You couldn't do any of that. And that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples are doing. So in their mind, this is how they saw it. He is plucking grain, harvesting, right? They're crushing the grain, threshing. They're trying to get away the chaff and they're blowing away. That's winnowing. They're trying to get it down to the grain and they're eating it. And all those activities, apart from even walking, he's accused of lots of, lots of crimes against the Sabbath. Jesus is not doing it right. Okay, so that's the accusation, and that's the strangeness of the standards, the human man-made standards of this rest day, okay? Everybody tracking so far? Now, watch Jesus' response. He gives three particular responses to that accusation of being a, a lawbreaker. And the first one is that he responds with the word of God to show precedent. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, it also gave it to those who were with him. You want to talk about a sentence, a first sentence that would make angry your audience. This one would be. So just, just hear the paraphrase. Have you never read the Bible? <laughs> Do you not know who David is? Did you not remember that story? I mean, it had to sink in. They were experts. These men knew Dave. David was their champion. He was Israel's hero. And they simply suggest, have you, you ever heard of David? It would really bother them, okay? And he starts to tell a story that's seen in uh, 1 Samuel. Don't need to turn there. 1 Samuel, David was God's man. He was selected by God's man to be the king to replace Saul. Saul was losing his mind. Saul was massively insecure, didn't want David at all. David, the desert fox, was out in the, in the wilderness kind of running from Saul. One night he gets hungry. His men get hungry, and he ends up at the, the house of God. And, and Ahimelech is there, the priest. And David says, you got anything to eat? We're starving to death. And he goes, well, the only thing here is these 12 loaves, the loaves of bread, the, 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 the bread of presence. It was an offering offered to God every, every week, 12 loaves, that at the end of the week they'd exchange it for fresh loaves, and then the priest, only the priests that were there could eat the, that bread. And God made that law, that regulation of that ceremony. But God also allowed David to eat. And they knew that story. That in this circumstance, that God's concern, love for, affections for, and, uh, the welfare of David, he said, go ahead and eat. And so David ate these, this, this bread. And so Jesus says, let's go to the scriptures. Let, let's look at this story here. Do you not remember how God allowed this regulation to be broken for the sake of his people? So if God would allow one of his rules to go, un to go broken for the love and the welfare of his, of his own, don't you think it's okay to break man-made ones for the same reason? You get the point? So it's an argument from, from this precedent 
that, that Jesus is making. But look at how he responds in verse 27. He responds with the intent of the law. He's talking about what the law was for. So verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's the intent. In other words, this is supposed to be a day of blessing. This is supposed to be a day of faith for God's people. God gave it to mankind for his benefit. And the Pharisees had taken that thing and totally, totally perverted it. As opposed to it being a day of rest and comfort and peace and ease, they were begging for Monday to come. They wanted to get back to work because that Sabbath was just brutal. Too many things to think about, too many things to worry about, too many laws to hold to, too many possibilities of failure, too many accusations of, of breaking God's commandment, too many things to repent of. It's just an overwhelming weight to deal with the Sabbath day. And, and so Jesus looks at the Pharisees who had created this monster and says, listen, don't you realize that this day was made for you and your good and you've made it something horrible? Nobody looks forward to this day because of you? Because of the way you've interpreted this thing, God wants his people to be with him. God wants his people to rest in him. God wants his people to believe in him. And by the way, he made us precisely like he wanted us, weak and frail. And we can't just keep going. We just can't. We're going to come back to that at the end. Notice his last response, verse 28. It was to declare authority to interpret God's law. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now just get this. Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of this day. I invented this day. I get to interpret this day. I get to decide what it's for and who does it. I, I get to decide that. Now, if it bothered the Pharisees to hear your sins are forgiven to the paralytic, this one is driving them crazy. Because we're not hiding behind innuendo anymore. I am the Lord of this day. Who made the day? God spoke to Moses. Uh-oh. You get my point? He's declaring himself God right here with the authority to interpret this instruction. No confusion here. Now, I know that all of these conflicts with Jesus are growing with every move he, he makes. But I really believe something snapped in their heads when he said that. I mean, maybe they could have said after he said your sins are forgiven. Like, maybe he doesn't understand. Maybe when he's hanging out with the sinners and the notoriously evil people, maybe they thought to themselves, maybe he's not smart enough. Maybe he isn't learned enough. When Jesus used the kind of secretive language of calling himself the bridegroom, maybe they didn't see. Maybe they cut him some slack and thought, well, maybe he just doesn't know how to use scripture. Here, he isn't hiding. I'm... I'm the one and only. And I think something snapped in their head, which gets us to this chapter three, first six verses story, which I believe is a deliberate setup to trap Jesus at this point. Let's read it. I'll show you. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them... Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. 
grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You remember the Jewish understanding of sickness, don't you? If you were sick, you did something wrong. I mean, the culture understood it this way. Like if you were crippled or maimed or sick, it was a direct result of your sin or your parents' sin, some ancestor, somebody did something wrong. And it meant so many things for their kind of cultural living. They were ostracized from places and people. One of the places specifically was a synagogue. Like e- either one, they were prohibited from going into the synagogue, but at, at least they didn't want to be there. Because if a crippled man walked into the synagogue, he was saying to everyone else, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm crippled. That's what they all thought. They, they wouldn't want to go through that. And the Pharisees know Jesus. Everywhere that guy goes, he heals people. I know what we'll do. Let's bring in a crippled guy and see if Jesus does what he always does. See if he, if he heals him on the Sabbath, and then, and then we got him. And we trapped him. Look at verse 4. Jesus deals with this, with this, I think, intended plan with a great question. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Now, if that first question, paraphrased, have you ever read the Bible about David? Bothered him? This really bothered him. In essence, Jesus was saying, do you know right from wrong? Do any of you know when to do right and when to do bad? Do you know the difference? Could, could you imagine the, the pride of the Pharisees? Well, wait a minute, we're writing this stuff. Who are you? We're the, we're the pinnacle example for the people of what it is to do right and what it is to avoid wrong. We, we're doing that. But Jesus asks the perfect question because the answer and the question expose these men. I want to start with the answer first, okay? Here's the question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Who couldn't answer this? When is it ever right to do harm? Never. To put it in the positive, it's always right to do right, always good to do good, always. It's never in doubt. But the Pharisees had this rule that we can only help somebody um, if they're in dire need and their life's at stake, but we can never improve someone. So here is this crippled man in their presence. They got no concern whatsoever. Jesus takes them to God's heart for good and says, it's always good to do good, okay? That would be the answer I hear like lurking in your minds, but you won't answer because you know you don't do that. Answer catches them. So they say nothing. Dead silent. Now watch the question. The question's intense too. In Luke's account of the very same story, before Jesus asked the question, Luke tells us that Jesus knew what they were thinking. Now that's very helpful before you ask a question to know what others are thinking, right? Um, and he knew what was brewing in their hearts was verse 6. You're here to trap me because you want to destroy me. He knew that. He knew what was in their heart. He knew what was in their minds, right? He knew what their intentions was. So let's paraphrase this question. This is probably how they heard it. Jesus saying this. I'm here to help. I'm here to do good and heal people. I'm here to do good all the time. And you're sitting around planning my execution. Now, who's keeping the law? You get my point? They didn't say anything because the question itself exposed their motives that they were there to do harm on the Sabbath. They weren't there to help or heal or lead anybody. They were there to, to do damage. Look at verse 5. Love verse 5. 
And, and he, that's Jesus, looked around at them with anger. This is intense. I, I don't know what it would be like to have the Lord of glory stare you down. I don't want it. But here these Pharisees are getting Jesus' anger. The word means wrath and fury. Have you ever seen any wrath and fury come out of somebody's stare before? I have. It's intimidating. Now, that's probably, if I was doing it, that's where it'd stop. But I want you to see the second word right after anger. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness. Now, you listen to me. He was furious about evil intentions. But there's hardly, a, hardly even a second between his anger over evil intentions before he's grieved. The word grieve simply means afflicted for another, compassion for another, hurt for another. Jesus can do both of them perfectly, right? Both of them perfectly to see evil intentions and to care about the hardness of someone's heart. By the way, that's our God, church, right? Amen. That's our God. He is holy in his justice and his wrath, and he's never going to compromise. This, this is the part the world looks at and goes, ah, baloney, I, I don't want it. But if he is not holy and he's not just and he, never, he doesn't ever, if he ever compromises, then he's not worth worship. His standard for sin is absolute. Therefore, he can look at all of us, see the motives and intentions and expressions of our lives, everything we have done and are going to do, and have every right feeling of wrath and anger for the evil intentions that resides in our heart before you can blink an eye. He's there with affliction for your soul. Compassion for your need. He's there to meet that need. Holy, just, and right wrath towards sin, and holy, compassionate, W-H-O-L-O-Y, towards our need. Scripture says that what we deserve is punishment and hell, right? That's what we deserve. And instead of getting what we deserve, we get grace and mercy. We get it all. The affliction of Christ for our dead hearts is what sent him to the cross for us. Amen? That's a good point to, to remember, but back to the story. Very simple. Jesus says to reach out your hand. This, this would be my take. This crippled man was a known crippled man. This, this infirmity was a known infirmity. My guess is this man didn't show up with his hand out in the open. My guess is he kind of kept it hidden, maybe under his cloak or something, because obviously how embarrassing, how humiliating. Everyone thinks I'm a sinner. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And in that humiliating moment, he does, and Jesus heals it. Now watch this, watch this. I don't know if it was like atrophied. I don't know if it was like, like deformed, probably. But every ligament, every bone, every muscle, every shape restored perfectly. That's what Jesus does when he heals people. Amen. Perfect restoration. Now, excuse my language here for just a second. How in the heck does verse 6 happen? How do, how do these religious leaders sitting there worried about details see this man who is a known crippled man extend his hand and have it healed perfectly in their vision? How do they go, okay, he's got to go. Time for Jesus to die. He's doing good things again. How does that happen? I'll, I'll tell you how it happened. Because there is a blindness that comes with hardness. 
there's a blindness that comes with hardness. Jesus said, your hearts are hard. He was angry about their hard heart, right? I want to stop and make a point. I want to drag it to your life. You might be sitting here as a skeptic. And if you are, I want you to listen to me. If you're, if you're a skeptic, you might have even gone so far as to say, okay, God, I don't believe like any of this. But I keep hearing people talk about this miraculous God who saves sinners. So here's what I want you to do, God. Do a miracle and I'm all yours. Never going to happen. If, if God tramped a miracle right in front of you, you would not believe. And do you know why? Because asking God to show you miracles is like saying that all you need is more information. And you don't need more information. The Bible tells us that God needs to bring life to your petrified, hard heart. If your heart that is dead comes alive, you will see Jesus, and you won't need to see a miracle. You'll have faith. If God shows you a miracle and your heart stays hard, you're just going to go, kill him, kill him. He's in the way. He cramps my style. You understand what I'm saying? What we need, what I need, what you need, what we confess when we sing and we gather is to say, God left heaven and he opened my dead heart. He opened my blind eyes. He took my hardened, calcified heart and he made it like flesh so that when it pumped, I saw Christ. And I wanted him. That's the gospel. You, you can look at a story like this and go, man, if I was a Pharisee, I'd be all in. No, you wouldn't. Without a supernatural divine intervention called the Holy Spirit making you new, no one comes to Christ. Now, I think there's a couple of points, at least there's a couple of points I want to finish with. In the few minutes we have, I think they're fairly big, and let me just make them. The problem the Pharisees had with Jesus is the same problem we all have with Jesus. Maybe that offends you a little bit. Hang in there for a second. Jesus claims to have the authority. He claims to be God. He's not even, he's not even cloudy, not a little bit. He claims to be the exclusive. And without that divine intervention we talked about, no one would believe that he is truly who he says he is. And if Jesus is God, it makes this gospel story we're talking about an exclusive truth. And we live in a culture that doesn't like exclusive truths because we don't want to tell anybody else they're wrong. But let me just tell you something. If there is only one way, how brutally, brutally evil is it to, to even imply to somebody else that good intentions or another option possibly would work? Isn't it the ultimate expression of grace and love to say, here it is? Here's where your cure to spiritual cancer is found. Here's where life is found. Here's where Jesus is found. Here's where future is found. Here's where forgiveness is found. It's not there. It's not there. It's not there. No matter how sweet you are, no matter how well-intended you are, it's only in Christ alone, by faith alone. It's small. It's so small that only the broken can get there. But if he is who he claims he is, and it makes this story exclusive. If he is who he says he is, it, makes, it requires our worship. And to be quite frank, some of us aren't prepared to do that because our worship card is full. I don't have time to worship him. I'm worshiping me. I've got everything set up for me to be happy. I don't want to think about that. I mean, it's, I only have room for me. And if he's truly God, then he requires our life. 
If he's truly God, he requires our obedience and our submission to his sovereignty. You might be sitting here going, I don't submit to anyone. Well, then there's still a a darkness in you. And I, I would just reflect on all this to say what it should tell us is that every one of us is a Pharisee without Jesus. Isn't it true? We can, we can pick on these guys. They're easy target from this position. But every one of us are a Pharisee without Christ. I've got one last point to make. It's more of an exhortation, really. You can't ignore verse 27 and 28 of chapter 2. You just can't. Let me read it again. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All right, Christian, look up, okay? What do you do with this? What do you do with it? Just write it off. Jesus had an encounter with the Pharisees. Let's get to the next text. Here's what I think you should do. Some of us legalistically look at this passage and go, well, the Sabbath doesn't apply to us anymore. It's, it's not law, it's grace, right? Amen. Someone should say amen. It is grace. I'm not tricking you, okay? It is, it is grace. But you're missing the point of verse 27 and 28. 27 and 28 aren't a law. They're a truth. Amen. And truth applies to you. God is not saying to his church, hey, by the way, I, uh, that Sabbath thing, that, those rules, that busyness, that, let's get back to that. Let's go back to that. That's not what he's saying. Jesus simply said, I made the Sabbath. I determine its use. I made the Sabbath for you. He didn't say the Sabbath doesn't matter. He said it matters to you. It applies, it applies to you. It's a truth about you, and it's a truth about Jesus. That's what the Sabbath says. So, so if I take you back to Colossians 2, where Paul is now redefining this idea of, uh, of, of law and legalism, how people try in their, in their particulars to push us into duty, he says this in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here's, here's what Paul is saying. This day of rest was supposed to point to the person of rest, who is Christ. He is your ultimate rest. Everything you long for is in Christ Jesus. So here's a question. I think it's worth asking. Maybe you'll leave with it today. How does our life prove that we're weak and that Jesus is our rest? Christian, I'm not giving you a day. I'm not telling you, you better pick a day. It better be Sunday. I'm not telling you what day. You better shut it off. I'm telling you, you have to answer the question, when do you prove that you're weak and frail and Jesus is your rest? Because we're Americans after all, and we don't do that. Some of you never shut it off, ever shut it off. You never shut it down. You just don't feel like you can. You're striving and working and striving and working and performing you don't sleep. I, I read an article um, that talked about the sleeplessness of America. And they say the epidemic of sleeplessness is just going through the roof, and particularly for millennials. They talked about cell phones being on bedstands and people answering, answering texts and emails constantly, always having to be plugged in because what happens? What happens if we lose the deal? What, what happens if I don't respond to that email? What happens? I won't have any money. And money's important. Here's what I'm telling you, church. Jesus is your rest. 
Do you not think God knows what you need? Do you not think that he knows better than you do? Here's what the Christian heart does with the Sabbath. It should rest better than everybody because they have Jesus. Amen? Better than everybody. If, if the world is pushing on you to get busy and stay busy, because after all, if you don't, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. You push back and say, nah, my father loves me. He's sovereign. All these particular pieces will come together just as he intends. I'll work hard six days a week or whatever, but I'm shutting it off here. Why? Because I'm going to prove that I'm frail and he is great. Amen. That's what I'm going to do. Now, the point that of connection to Pharisees I want to make is how, how are we any different than a Pharisee who follows rules and never rests because the rules are too much when we never rest because we've forgotten that Jesus is our rest? It's the same thing. You can claim him as your Lord and Savior, but if you don't prove it by your behavior, I don't know what you're doing. I read an article, probably a blog post by John Piper, and I think John's probably the only guy who could write this like this, but it wasn't particularly about Sabbath, it was about sleep. But I'm putting it all together because I think the truth applies. Just, just, just think God's rest, okay? The way God makes us rest. This is what he says, let it sink in. I sit on the edge of my bed trying to develop a theology of sleep. Why did God design us to need sleep? We sleep a third of our lives. Just think a third of our lives is spent like dead men. Just think of everything being left undone that could be done had God not designed us to need sleep. There is surely no doubt that he could have created us with no need for it. And just think, everyone could devote himself to two careers and not feel tired. Everyone could be a full-time Christian worker and still keep his job. There's so much of our father's business we could be about. Why did God imagine sleep? He never sleeps. He thought the idea up out of nothing. He thought it up for his earthly creatures. Why? Psalm 127. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved in his sleep. According to this text, sleep is a gift of love, and the gift is often spurned by anxious toil. Peaceful sleep is the opposite of anxiety. God does not want his children to be anxious, but to trust him. Therefore, I conclude that God made sleep as a continual reminder that we should not be anxious, but rest in him. Sleep is a daily reminder that God, from God that we are not God. He who, sleeps, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, that's Psalm 121, but Israel will sleep, for we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around, from the same, comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father God, I just pray that you let this message sink into our American souls. In Christ, we have nothing to fear. In Christ, we have no one to impress. In Christ, you meet our needs. So God, I pray that some, some place, some way, that your church would live as if we are people and you are God, our God, and that we would rest in Jesus, our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.